A social distancing tip. Keeping your distance from others is important in slowing the spread of coronavirus. So here are some fun things to do alone. Read a book, take a walk, unpack your suitcase from that trip you took last September, paint a self-portrait, catch up on a TV series, do a puzzle. Remember, we should all stay home to lower the risk for everyone. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part, because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council. I rise in support of H.R. 4104, the Negro League's Baseball Centennial Commemorative Coin Act. In New Jersey's 2nd District, we were home to the Baccarat Giants in Atlantic City. The team was a top contender in the league and won two pennants in 1926 and 1927. The Giants were lucky enough to host players such as John Henry Pop Lloyd, a player who Babe Ruth himself once called the greatest ball player of all time anywhere ever. Pop Lloyd would end up retiring and coaching youth baseball in Atlantic City until the day he died, and he was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1977. Players like Pop Lloyd would lay the foundation for future stars such as Jackie Robinson and Hank Aaron, who would change the game forever. Yet players like Lloyd and the leagues they played in are slowly becoming forgotten to the, to the annals of history. We cannot let that happen. I thank the gentleman from Missouri for introducing this important legislation to commemorate and honor those players and the role they play in shaping America's very favorite pastime. May God bless them. Thank you, and I yield back. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, hello, gang. It's uh, your professor of previously domiciled, your reverend of relocation, your captain of contraction, your evocator of expansion, your doctor of defunct. It's your pal, Tim Hanlon. And it is, of course, Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast, not so little anymore, actually, that is devoted to what used to be in the realm and the dimensions of forgotten sports, that what used to be in pro sports in particular. We uh, appreciate you finding us in uh, the wilds of podcast land, and we hope and trust uh, that you're doing okay. You're soldiering on. It's uh, it's not fun. Uh, lots of things that are not fun these days, and uh, sadly, just continues to be. It just seems to drag on and on and on, and so much uncertainty and so much uh, instability. Absolutely uh, feeling it here. I'm sure you're feeling it in various flavors wherever you are. I hope uh, that our little journey together this week perhaps uh, allays some of those fears, perhaps distracts a bit, and uh, let's uh, enjoy, shall we, a little bit of uh, professional sports as it used to be. Uh, And this week, uh, we uh, go uh, dial into the Wayback Machine uh, back to a time, an earlier time, during the the flourishing uh, days and years of the Negro Leagues. And... um, we get into today, this week, our story uh, with our pal Jim Overmeyer, uh, a curious uh, and interesting overlap between uh, local politics in Atlantic City, New Jersey, of all places, and that of professional baseball, Negro League style, as we talk about a team known as the Baccarat Giants of Atlantic City. And uh, that little clip that you had just heard uh, was a little floor presentation on the House of Representatives floor. Uh, by Representative Jeff Van Drew. 
He is the uh, Republican from New Jersey's second district that encompasses uh, North Wildwood, Vineland, and of course, Atlantic City, New Jersey. Uh, and that was him uh, talking about his uh, co-sponsorship uh, of a uh, commemorative, that's how you say it, Jeff, come on, a coin uh, series devoted to that of the Negro Leagues. Uh, this is back in March, I think March 11th, about two months ago or so, HR 4104. I don't know the status of that bill, uh, but it, it's, a, it's a safe one for sure. And uh, it makes a lot of sense, if you will. Uh, it's uh, the guy representing Atlantic City today. Uh, stepping up and remembering a team that uh, was absolutely ensconced in the political firmament of Atlantic City back uh, in the day, in particular, uh, the day of uh, of the 1920s and 1930s. The story of the Atlantic City Bacharach Giants, a fascinating tale that essentially uh, was a political creature, uh, this team. Bacharach, who is this guy Bacharach? Well, Harry Bacharach was his name. I don't know. We don't think there was any relation to Burt Bacharach of pop music authorship fame. Uh, perhaps there is. I, I just didn't have time to figure it out. And, and Jim didn't seem to think so either. But, you know, uh, regardless, uh, Harry Bacharach was an Atlantic City politician back in the day in the late uh, 1900s running for mayor. And uh, if you're a fan of the show Boardwalk Empire, you know that politics and other sundry activities in the great seaside city of Atlantic City around that time was, um, ooh, shall we say, a curious endeavor. And uh, one of the curiosities, perhaps one of the more uh, tame curiosities, uh, was the fact that uh, this uh, Negro League baseball team was essentially sponsored by uh, this Harry Bacharach or, or friends of, as we would call today, uh, who wanted to support his candidacy for mayor and uh, interestingly became essentially synonymous uh, with this uh, very, uh, very good team, uh, most of whom came from actually Jacksonville, Florida, of all places. A lot of the a lot of the players and the uh, the uh, pre version of this team. And we're going to get into all the uh, ins and outs of, of this uh, fascinating story. Uh, this team, obviously uh, representative of, of lots of things of the Negro Leagues of its day. Uh, this Harry Bacharach character, Atlantic City politics, why the two sort of conjoined. And frankly, God forbid we actually talk about the baseball itself. Quite some quality there. Uh, as you heard uh, Congressman Van Drew sort of allude to, uh, the beginnings and the inspirations actually for a lot, a lot of players uh, some who actually played for the AC Bacharach Giants, as well as some of those who were influenced uh, by some of those players in later generations. It's a fascinating story. Uh, it intertwines uh, the story of politics in New Jersey and Atlantic City in particular, uh, as well as baseball's history, as well as that specifically of the Negro Leagues. We get into all of that. It's a fascinating tale of the Atlantic City Bacharach Giants with our guest this week, Jim Overmeyer. He, the authoritative voice and writer of the definitive book called Black Ball and the Boardwalk, the Bacharach Giants of Atlantic City. Uh, and uh, we get into all of that uh, in just a few moments time uh, in our conversation this week. Fascinating as always. And we appreciate you sticking around for it. And it's coming up in mere moments as uh, we uh, beforehand get to uh, our sponsor of the week. And that is, of course, our friends at Streaker Sports. 
Streakersports.com. That's the place to go. Promo code, of course, good seats, 10% off all of your purchases. If you haven't been there yet, I don't know what you're waiting for. They call themselves, as you uh, listeners of this show may know by now, the purveyor of sports culture. And it's a trademark term. And for God's sakes, of course, it should be. Uh, because uh, sports culture is in their veins at Streaker Sports. Uh, if you remember and love various sports-flavored things, such as Caddyshack, perhaps you are a fan of the original Mighty Ducks or the movie Slapshot. Uh, perhaps you were a kid and you remember The Miracle on Ice in 1980. Maybe you're a Bill Raftery fan with his uh, trademark signature phrase, onions. Well, all of those and a whole bunch of other things are commemorated in a lot of great garb and, and especially in T-shirts at Streaker Sports. They're fascinating and, and officially licensed articles of clothing that you can show and uh, and, and, and amaze your friends uh, with your various pop cultural references. Um, but of course, beyond the sports culture stuff, we love them and you know them and want to know them for all their great defunct league stuff. They've got perhaps, perhaps, he says, the most comprehensive collection of t-shirts with all great logos and memories devoted to leagues that we love to commemorate and obsess about, frankly, here on this little show. You're a fan of the World Football League? How about the World Hockey Association? How about the USFL? Maybe Roller Hockey International or the even the, uh, the tangential pro beach hockey uh, offering from years ago. Maybe you're a fan of the old indoor lacrosse league known as the MILL, the Major Indoor Lacrosse League. How about the ABA, the most colorful of basketball leagues for sure, or perhaps nearest and dearest to our hearts here at Good Seats Still Available for various reasons, the old North American Soccer League. All of those leagues, you will find just about every single stinking team that was in each of those leagues in a tremendous, well-crafted, high-quality t-shirt form at Streaker Sports. StreakerSports.com. And again, use the promo code Good Seats. And you're going to get 15. No, I'm sorry. 10%. I wish it were 15. Maybe we could talk to the boys and they can get it up to 15. I don't know. But for now, <laughs> please be satisfied with 10%. That's a pretty damn good deal, if you ask me. 10% off all of your purchases at StreakerSports.com when you use the promo code GOODSEATS. We thank the gents, the good gents at Streaker Sports, the purveyors of sports culture, uh, for their sponsorship of the show. We, uh, we love their stuff, and you will too. All right, let's uh, segue into our uh, our chat now as we dial back the machine, the Wayback Machine, and the uh, circuitry now points us to the mid to late 1900s or so as we get into the beginnings of the story of this fascinating tale of the Negro League team known as the Atlantic City Bacharach Giants. Here's our chat with Jim Omerier. We appreciate your listening, and here it comes. Please, as always, Enjoy. There's uh, just a, a lingering fascination with uh, all of that of Negro League Baseball, uh, including, of course, the topic we're going to get into today. But uh, remind our audience a bit of sort of how you uh, skated into this enormously intriguing world that continues to amaze and delight, I think, even as the years still roll on. Yes. Well, in uh, I've been a member of the Society for American Baseball Research since, I don't know, somewhere in the mid-80s. And I went to a meeting at, uh, I lived in, I lived near Albany, New York at the time. 
I lived, went to a meeting at the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown in the summer of 88, and my wife Ellen went along because it was a good ride, and she went through the museum when I went to the meeting, and uh, on the way out of town, she uh, said, say, who is this Effa Manley anyway? And I prided myself being a Sabre member of knowing all about baseball, and I said, who is that? She well, she was an owner in the Negro Leagues, and there's a Negro League exhibit in there, and she's featured prominently, and she was a civil rights leader and a good businesswoman, and you ought to write something about her. Oh, okay, I guess I will, uh, you know, maybe a magazine article if I can find out something about her. Well, before a year was over, I had... Uh, um, been informed that when she moved out of Newark, when uh, she had owned the Newark Eagles with her late husband, she left her business papers behind in two filing cabinets in the basement of her old house, and somehow they survived not being thrown out or burned up in a fire or flooded in a basement flood or anything. And they wound up being donated to the Newark Public Library, where they are the biggest single primary source of information on the Negro Leagues uh, now and ever. So I went down and I went, started going through those. I took one look at the collection and I said to myself, well, you've never written a book before, but it looks like you're going to now because you can't walk away from this stuff. So I did. <laughs> and so there was one book, Effa, Queen of the Negro Leagues, Effa Manley and the Newark Eagles. Well, then a few years later, I was asked to write um, a chapter for a book on Ebbets Field. It was basically a collection, not a history of the of the ballpark in Brooklyn as such, but a collection of essays about different aspects of it. And one was black baseball there. Well, it had been used um, substantially by three teams, one, the second of which was the Eagles, because they spent their first year in the Negro National League in 1935 in Brooklyn. Well, that was easy. I mean, I'd done that before, so I could do that again. And the third team was the United States League, which was the attempt at a third major league in 1945 and 46, which was... <clears throat> at least so far as the Brooklyn team was concerned, a sort of cover for Branch Rickey's uh, clandestine scouting of black players that resulted in the signing of Jackie Robinson. Uh, so kind of everybody in the Negro League historical business knew about that too, so that was pretty easy too. Well, the first team was the Backrack Giants, who, who were basically based in Atlantic City, I, but they played in the early 20s, had, had transported some of their home games to Ebbets Field and playing around New York because the black teams barnstormed a lot. And I knew nothing about them. Here's another one of those things I didn't know anything about. And as soon as I get into it, I was hooked. So <laughs> I wrote, uh, I, so I researched the back racks and I did that chip. I finished that chapter for the book and I was so interested in the Backrack Giants that they wound up being my second book a few years after that. Some, some things I just can't leave alone. Well, it's interesting. It almost seems like it's a, it's sort of like one of those Russian nesting dolls and, and maybe maybe you, you have a few more smaller ones to get to <laughs> given, given that, <laughs> Probably. that path, right? Um, 
Well, okay. So why don't we use that as the as the uh, the branching off point, so to speak? So what is it about the the Backrock Giants that that kind of intrigues you? Because I, I my sense is that as you kind of uh, peeled back some of the layers, you maybe sort of <laughs> maybe just got so uh, hooked into all the various connections and broad uh, topics that this team kind of uh, uh, ventured into, not just being a, a, a team in the fledgling Negro Leagues right on the field? Well, it, everything I write about, which is usually baseball and usually black baseball, it happens in context. It happens in historical and economic context. And the back racks were launched at the time of the period in the wild and woolly Atlantic City history that was um, characterized in that HBO series, Boardwalk Empire. In fact, the, the series was based upon a book written by a local historian in uh, in New, southern New Jersey called Boardwalk Empire. So we're watching, so I'm researching the backtracks and we're watching this on TV, particularly the first couple of seasons before the story started to stray. And I'd say to my wife, Ellen, that really happened. Or Ellen, that happen sort of the way they portrayed it. So I'm, I'm researching the book and I'm, and I'm seeing the background on spooling on TV every Sunday night. And your wife gets show notes along the way while she's watching. So she gets completely <laughs> she distracted. Gets yeah, nice. yeah. Well, Atlantic city was someplace. Uh, it really, it really was the fictionalized elements aside. It really was the wide open, place that was characterized in the TV series, and um, the Backrack Giants were part of that, although they they did not run any gambling houses, and they did not uh, bring in booze off of uh, ships during Prohibition or anything like that, but they have this funny name, the back, the Atlantic City Backrack Giants, and why, why Backrack? Well, there was a member of the political establishment there at the time, whose name was Harry Backrack. He was actually, um, he gets very short shrift in the TV series because he was pretty honest. He sort of was a guy who could lie down with dogs, but not get very many fleas on him when he got up. But he was in fact, the mayor, a, a city commissioner and mayor for several years there. And he was running for re-election in 1916, and a substantial portion of the permanent population, as opposed to this large seasonal population in Atlantic City, was African American, and they voted. And so you, you really wanted their votes. And one of um, Jackson's political, uh, uh, rather, Backrack's political operatives was a guy named Tom Jackson, who was black and lived there in the North Side community. And he had this great idea. Why don't we get a team in the colored league, as they called it at that time, and name it the Backracks? Well, that was a great idea. I didn't have a team yet, but he had a friend who was also in the hospitality business named Henry Tucker, who was a native of Jacksonville, Florida, and had actually managed some black teams there. So Tucker went south. And this is at a particular time in history when there was a large northward migration of blacks in the south the 
boll weevil had struck and had ruined the southern um, cotton crop, putting a lot of sharecroppers and tenant farmers out of business. Also, World War II had started in Europe with cutting off uh, European immigration, and northern industries were begging for workers, railroads, agriculture, steel mills, and, and the like. They were recruiting heavily in the south, so Tucker went back to Jacksonville and basically recruited one of the top semi-pro black teams there called the Duval Giants. Duval County is where Jacksonville is located. And they got on a train and they went north to Atlantic City in, in May of 2016. And they picked up a few other players locally or on the way or through Tucker's contacts. And there, just prior to the election, is this team on the field with Backracks on their name, playing before the black crowd. Everybody knew that Harry Backrack was their sponsor. He threw out the first ball on opening day at a ballpark that he got them. Uh, he got permission or gave permission, since he was also the parks commissioner, for the team to play in a city park where they really probably had no business, but there they were. It was Atlantic City. And so they were the Backrack Giants. And Backrack himself was never involved in running the team, but it was so the connection was so strong that the Atlantic City newspapers, you know, trying to get game results into a one-column story and write up a catchy headline. Well, Backracks is a pretty long name for a headline, so they the, the newspapers would call them the mayors. Clearly, they were Mayor Backrack's team. Oh, well, we won the election and became mayor, right? And so there's, there's just a touch of Atlantic City, not not really nefarious, bending the rules maybe a little bit, and nothing nothing illegal. But uh, their whole their whole genesis tells you a lot about power and privilege and corner cutting in Atlantic City in those days. Well, all right. So a couple of things to unpack there. So number one, uh, circa late 19 teens, right? So this is sort of World War One era stuff you had sort of this migration stuff going on uh, was this duval giants team what were they in a in a semi-pro league themselves or were they kind of part of this uh barnstorming sort of independentness because it seems like the atlantic city version once they were sort of established that was kind of the way they got going versus sort of joining a, a an actual league per se is that right i'm not sure if the duval giants were in a league in jacksonville but and and I didn't barnstorm. They all had day jobs and played part time. But they were they were the cream of the crop in Jacksonville. And and interestingly enough, when Jackson uh, Tom Jackson and Henry Tucker inserted them into the Atlantic City Colored League, they wrecked the league. They were so much better than anybody else. That nobody, everybody, all the fans wanted to see the back racks. No one wanted to go to the other games, and the league fell apart before the season was over. So it was, they were sort of a creative slash destructive process in Atlantic City baseball. They weren't barnstorming per se, but they were, if you will, independent, uh, sort of on a local ge geographic basis. Then uh, both, both in both uh, Jacksonville and then obviously when they became Atlantic City. Yes, but in 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 Jacksonville they were in Atlantic City. It didn't last because they wanted to expand their their horizons, and there were. 
two good. They, Atlantic City is about 60 miles from Philadelphia. The land there it's called the Pine Barrens. It's about as flat as a pool table, and there were by 1916 there were not one but two railroads running back and forth to Philadelphia, which is 60 miles away, and it's it's become the major hot tourist area there on the southern Jersey Shore, and mostly from people from Philadelphia. Well, Philadelphia was full of um, semi-pro, white semi-pro team, and some black ones too, but mostly white, sponsored by industries, um, the Brill Company that made streetcars, the John B. Stetson Hat Company. You may have heard of the Stetson Hat. A lot of people out here in Arizona wear them. Uh, John B. Stetson Company made the Stetson Hats for the Cowboys. Uh, Department stores, sponsored teams, there was just teams all over the place. And the Backracks would take the train to Philadelphia to play them. More importantly, Philadelphia, I mean, Pennsylvania had uh, a ban on Sunday baseball until the 1930s. I'm not sure if New Jersey had a ban on Sunday baseball, but in Atlantic City, if the local authorities didn't want to enforce a, a law or a rule, it stayed unenforced. So the Philadelphia teams were more than happy to get on that same train and come to Atlantic City to play the back racks on Sundays when they couldn't play at home. Sunday always being a great day to play baseball. A lot of people with nothing to do in the afternoon would come and pay and see you play. So the the back racks had easily established a relationship with the hotbed of semi-pro ball in Philadelphia, which actually sustained them for a long time, but really was their major source of games and income up until World War One. So it's, it almost feels like uh, maybe arguably t- through sort of today, Atlantic City is almost uh, as a team, I guess, almost uh, it's almost sort of a regional uh, exposure in some respects because you've got Philadelphia uh, tourists and vacationers uh, uh, sort of keeping Atlantic City sort of on their radar. And, and the fact that it's relatively close, right, it almost feels like you've got a, a bigger base, I guess, than what you would normally consider Atlantic City, which itself is certainly much smaller, uh, certainly much more seasonally inflated uh, in terms of population and arguably a bigger market, if you will, to draw or at least be, a, a, a you know, aware amongst Atlantic City at the time had a permanent population of uh, you know about twenty five thousand people on major weekends in the summer. The, there was six weekends they called them the Big Six, <laughs> six weekends which was really the focus of tourism, and the town would have two or three hundred thousand people in, on those weekends, and most of them would go back obviously, and you know and the temporary population inflated because all the hotels and restaurants and amusements needed uh, seasonal workers. So it was um, Atlantic City and Philadelphia were very, and I suspect to a certain extent still are, were very closely linked. Uh, it was Atlantic City was the recreational outlet for Philadelphia. It was so easy to get there. It was literally an hour's train ride each way. All right. So this, though, so the other thing to sort of unpack here is that and I want to get into Backrack himself in a second, but this was largely this is a a promotional endeavor, right? More than anything else, right? It, it, the idea of, of recruiting a team and and then slapping 
Harry Backrack's name associated with it. It feels like just simply a, a grand promotional play more than anything else. It was a promotional endeavor, a politically a political promotional endeavor, which is not unusual. Uh, it was not the only case in which in a sports team or an athletic amateur athletic club was named after uh, named after a local politician. This this had happened before Backrack, and it happened after Backrack, really. Um, but but at but the Giants were another um, example of this of this happening, and the only African American one that I'm aware of. Uh, that made it that made it somewhat different. Well, I, so all right, so so give me a sense of of this Harry Backrack guy because uh, you know you claim he's he's relatively you know uh, clean, if you will, to to that of, of the the far more intriguing uh, set of characters in 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 the boardwalk empire world. But, you know, he also had his moments of, it seems like a, a, a questionable or at least a, a investigated sort of uh, shenanigans or perceived shenanigans around uh, politics, right? Messy, especially around that time. So I, even the cleanest of politicians, so to speak, it, that's got to be a relative statement, right? Harry was only indicted once, which is a pretty good track record. And that was only for election fraud. There you go. Hmm? Only indicted. That was for election fraud, which in Atlantic City is sort of like jaywalking, or at least at the time, was sort of like somewhere between jaywalking and pinching an apple from a street side fruit vendor, you know. Uh, and this happened in uh, 2010 when Woodrow Wilson was elected governor of New Jersey. The machine in Atlantic City was solid Republican. And when all the votes were counted, it turned out that there were more votes for the in Atlantic County for the for the Republican candidate for governor than there were registered voters which sort of set off a lot of alarm bells in the capital at Trenton so the state launched an investigation and started indicting people including Harry Atlantic County launched its own investigation and indicted all the major figures on the other side all the Democrats. So the whole thing sort of fell apart. And after two or three years, Backrack's indictment and many others were dismissed because it was just impossible to prosecute them. Um, Harry, um, he had a lie. He, he turned out to be a very good mayor. He, he was also uh, the U.S. postmaster. His brother Isaac was the congressman from that area in South Jersey. They had actually a very good record. Backrack, you know, there was no civil service. Backrack was as prone to anyone else as dumping, when he got into office, this is dump the supporters of the previous mayor out on the street and hire his own people in City Hall and all of that. But uh, he was pretty well liked and admired in the 30s. Um, I don't remember the guy's name now, but the, the mayor, the sitting mayor, was under investigation, which uh, ended when he managed to get himself killed in a train wreck along with the four passenger. His car was hit by a train. And so the office was vacant, and the city council considered um, who to appoint, and they drafted Backrack and put him in. And it was a terrible time. I mean, the city was facing bankruptcy. In the middle of the Depression, the city was facing bankruptcy. Tourism had dropped off. Backrack had a lot of, of connections. He was on a couple of um, part-time New York, uh, I mean, New Jersey uh, state 
commissions and he pulled he pulled all the strings that is available got got some debts uh forsworn got some got a large loan to the city and by the time the depression was over the city had weathered through it and was doing you know tourism picked up and things were going very well and harry got a lot of credit for that so he's uh, okay, so I, this is uh, completely intriguing. So uh, it almost feels like this is a bit of a rehabilitation effort for him, circa 16 or so, because, you know, he'd obviously been investigated and obviously part of, uh, uh, I, I want to call it free fraud, uh, free uh, wheeling, but uh, certainly a, a, a politics in Atlantic City, not necessarily the uh, the cleanest and uh, and most uh, well-lit of uh, of endeavors, right? So, but so... But it feels almost like it was sort of a not only a promotional thing, but kind of a way to kind of maybe more better ingratiate himself, not only from a promotional perspective, but maybe from a, a civic perspective as well from his political allies. Uh, yes, he was. The city government consisted of five commissioners who were elected at large, and one of them then became the mayor. And he was a commissioner already, but he wanted to be mayor. And he it generally went to the the commissioner who got the most votes in the election was probably going to be mayor unless the others, there was a good reason for the others to conspire against him. And he wanted to be the top vote getter and he wanted to be the mayor. And sure enough, in the 1916 election, he was the top vote getter and became the mayor. Did having the backrack giants on the field during the campaign push him over the top? Well, who knows? He had very good relations. I mean, he had very good relations with the African-American community. Um, in fact, you know, Jackson, who was a black guy, the uh, the prim premier owner of their operator of the team, was an African-American political uh, operative on the north side there where the blacks lived. So... So Harry had good connections with the black community. Jackson and Tucker made them even better. And he was the top vote getter in the election and became the mayor. Now, is this, this all of this, is this all a string of causality? Not necessarily, but it's certainly, there was certainly a relationship there. All right. Well, I guess the question then sort of nets out to who's using who here, right? Is it, is it, uh, uh, they're using each other well okay so maybe get a little bit into that because it seems like it's obviously opportunity uh, for baseball and and all that stuff some of the things we've talked about just generally but also obviously slapping a uh, a, a white jewish mayor's name on uh, ostensibly a largely or fully negro league or african-american league baseball endeavor right uh you're mentioning good relations but it also seems sort of very convenient, so to speak. It's very convenient. One hand was definitely washing the other. Um, the back rack, Harry and his brother Isaac, continued to support the team throughout the 20s. Uh, they were finding a ballpark in Atlantic City for anybody was always a problem because the city was and it's basically on a, on a glorified sandbar just off the coast of New Jersey, and land is... Uh, Deer and as development kept going on, uh, it became harder and harder to find good places to <clears throat> build a ballpark. When uh, that was a problem, the backracks often stepped in. The best park they had for the most of their their period was a 
a piece of undeveloped residential land that um, Isaac Backrack rented from a developer and let the Backracks use for five years. Harry uh, would, I think there was problem. There might have been some behind the scenes financial support of the team too. It's very hard to figure that out. Direct financial support, very hard to figure that out now. But clearly, the Backrack brothers found them places to play and things like that. In in the other, on the other hand, there's there's the connection between. Harry and Isaac Backrack, who needed votes too, although he represented a much larger constituency than Atlantic City. And there's their name constantly being bandied about in on the north side, the black uh, the black community of Atlantic City. It worked pretty well for, for both sides. Where, where um, uh, who's running this club, right? So obviously the branding is there, but uh, Backrack and his brother are not running the club. How how are, how are the players being stocked and how is the team itself being managed? And frankly, where are they playing? They're obviously independent, but I, I also, from my crack research, uh, they also seem to be sort of informally related to the, uh, the Negro National League at the time, 1920 or so as well. Yes. They were pretty much a, a local or regional, like Atlantic City, Philadelphia, and the areas in between, to the end of 1918, when they almost went out of business. Uh, the, the beginning of the war, the really active American participation in the war, caused a drop-off in attendance all across the board, including the majors. In Philadelphia, a lot of the semi-pro teams folded because you know the players were getting drafted. The, the Backrack Giants barely finished the season. In fact, they lost players of their own, either because they couldn't pay them or because they got drafted. They were, this is something I uncovered researching the book. In August of 1918, they stumbled through the end of their season as an integrated team. They picked up three or four of the, of the better white semi-pros in Atlantic City to fill vacancies. So you actually had an integrated black team playing for about a month, which is pretty unknown. <laughs> they, one of them, in fact, was a guy named Whitey Gruller, who was 17 years old at the time. He played it that month for them. Later, he became a sports writer, and he became sports editor of the Atlantic City Daily Press, and in the 40s was a constant uh, proponent of integration of Major League Baseball before Jackie Robinson. And you've got to wonder if, if Whitey just didn't sort of get his start there playing alongside black players in 1918. So, yes, so they almost went out of business, and then there was the thing that, saves a lot of businesses, somebody with cash and influence. And Jackson took in two partners from New York City. One was John Connors, who had been a base. He, he ran a restaurant in, in Brooklyn and then in Harlem. And he was pretty popular in that regard, but he was also very popular as a as successful as a baseball impresario. He had had semi-pro black team in Brooklyn as early as 1904. He was forced out of business by business uh, opponent, white, a white business opponent uh, named Nat Strong, who sort of dominated the semi-pro 
scene in New York City by tying up uh, base available baseball fields and charging people to use them. So Connor was put out of business, and he was happy to jump at the opportunity with the back racks. And he brought in a business partner who had even probably even more money than him, a guy named Baron Wilkins, who was one of the leading speakeasy uh, operators in Harlem, and had a, some sporting some sporting interest. He was a backer of Jack Johnson, the prize fighter, and interested in sports, not as a hands-on guy, but as somebody like put some money into it and enjoy it. So they bought into the back racks and rejuvenated the team. And this is, in fact, when they started playing part-time in New York City. Because they were from New York City, they wanted the team to play in New York City. They wanted to be outside of the the grip of uh, Nat Strong. They didn't want to be paying him a fee to use a ballpark. And Ebbets Field, a strong, strong had no sway over Ebbets Field or the polo grounds. So they wound up at Ebbets Field for several important home series in those early 20s. So the team was rejuvenated. And then there's still no there's still no league ball in the East, but as you pointed out, the Negro National League had started out in the Midwest in 1920. And the Backracks, Rube Foster was the president, the very energetic and powerful president of the Negro National League. And he offered Eastern clubs what were called associate memberships. You could be a, an associate member of his league, which gave you the opportunity to schedule games with his teams, which of course were potential money makers. It also allowed you to be exempt from his his league teams rating your rosters, treating you like an like an independent team, and. Uh, where free agency reigned among the players and siphoning off your players. Of course, you have, you couldn't siphon off his player, his league's players either. But it was a it was an arrangement that was often used in the Negro leagues. And the Backracks became the first associate member of the Negro National League in 1920, which helped them a lot. They then became they they stayed associates of um, the Negro National League and got. So they were playing a lot of black. They were playing a lot of more high-class black teams and traveling to New York City more and playing in the high-level semi-pro world, uh, white world of uh, semi-pro ball in New York City. Things were and things were going very well. And then in 1923, the Eastern, the, the primary Eastern teams, most most of whom were so were Negro National League associates came to what was pretty, in retrospect, seems like a pretty obvious conclusion that they should have their own league. So the Eastern Colored League was founded, stretching from New York City to to, uh, Baltimore. It was pretty compact. You didn't have to pay train expenses to go all the way to Detroit or Chicago to play uh, play the National League teams. You could play among yourselves, and then you could, then you, if you wanted to, you could take a barnstorming trip West or the Western teams would come and see you for a barnstorming trip, which was always profitable. So the Eastern Colored League was founded in 1923, and the Backracks were charter members. 
bringing us up to how they got into a league. Yeah. So um, (laughs) maybe you sort of touched on it, but why would they not have gone the Negro National League route and foster maybe not sort of uh, trying to, if you will, expand from the Midwest to the East Coast, given a handful of associates at this point? I would always imagine that that Foster might have looked at the uh, the founding of this Eastern Color League almost as a as an affront, maybe. Well, he did. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> as a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, he looked at it very much as an affront, and they didn't uh, negotiations for a uh, Negro World Series, which you would have thought would have been a sort of an automatic, dragged on for a year, and didn't. And the first series didn't play, take place until 1924. A lot of the colored teams were very undercapitalized because they catered to ten. They catered primarily to ten percent of the American population, which tended to be people who held lower income jobs, and there simply was not that. It simply was not the discretionary income to buy ballpark tickets that there were among the whites, and so barns so, so barnstorming was very important. Going going on a road for a week or two at a time, and you know hitting hitting some cities and playing some Negro League opponents, but playing all these little towns along the way. Are you picking up picking up money all the way? The tra- well, the travel the travel to the Midwest, the costs were extensive. Ed Bolden, who who ran the team called Hilldale in Philadelphia, before when the league, when the Eastern League was founded, wrote in in the Philadelphia Tribune that basically I can I can play I can play a week here in Philadelphia where my players can walk to work and make more money than I would after putting them on a train to Chicago and paying their way to and from Chicago for a series. Uh, so it was it was a matter primarily of economics. It would be you know taking taking a, a a trip to the Midwest from the East and playing a bunch of teams and coming back, say take for two months or two weeks rather would be a good thing. Having to go there all the time was a bad thing, financially a bad thing. But but almost immediately, right? You've got Atlantic City and this Eastern Color League essentially kind of, you know, arguably playing in some maybe more major markets being in the East Coast and stuff. I, so before we sort of get into the Giants a little bit more, where it feels like there was almost a, a I won't call it an uneasy piece, right? But uh, there was certainly uh, some postseason collaboration as the years went on between these two leagues, right? Yes, the ambassadors went to work and <laughs> The first Negro World Series was played in 1924 between the Eastern Colored League champion and the Negro National League champion. And the, there was then a Negro World Series in 25, 26, and 27. There may have been more, but the economy uh, got worse prior leading up to the Great Depression. And the Eastern Colored League went out of business in the middle of 1928, which, of course, ended that relationship. Of course, the Negro National League was only a few years behind in doing the same thing. But 
So, so there were, yeah, there were, let's see, 24, 25, there were four Negro World Series between the ECL and the, and the National League, and the Backracks were in two of them, although they didn't manage to win either of them. They, had a, they got better and better as time went on, and they were really a good team by the mid-20s. Well, well, let's talk about that team a little bit. So, so give me a sense of of some of these players. We haven't really mentioned some of their names yet, but there's some really uh, intriguing and uh, and solid characters on this on this team, and and maybe a little bit of how how they were getting better, right? I mean, uh, Backrack, not how much did he care know about the the doings of the team and or who was running all of the sort of on field stuff, and where are these players coming from? Well, you had. Um... Yeah, Jack, Tom Jackson was the primary owner, primary owner, and then he brought in uh, he brought in uh, Connor and uh, Baron Wilkins from New York City, who basically neutralized Jackson. They were big money guys, and Jackson was I mean he was connected with the team, but he was not didn't have the power that he had before. They. Baron uh, Wilkins and Connor, well, let's give credit to Connor. He was really the baseball man. He knew a lot of people. He he brought John Henry Lloyd to the team. Pop Lloyd, the Hall of Famer, considered to be maybe the best black shortstop there ever was. I mean, one of the best shortstops anywhere there ever was. Lloyd, He brought Lloyd to the team. Lloyd became the manager. Lloyd became the star of the team, or one of the stars of the team. Interestingly enough, uh, Lloyd was getting a little on in years when he came to the Backracks, and one of his first managerial decisions was to shift himself to second base because that shortstop was one of the was basically his successor as the best shortstop at the time, Dick Lundy who had been one of the original Duval Giants. He was 17 years old when he came up from Jacksonville in 1916. And before many years were gone, he was regarded as you know the, the up-and-coming young infield star in black baseball. So Lloyd switched himself to second base. Lundy stayed at shortstop. So you've got now an all-star up-the-middle up the uh, situation there outfielders they they really uh, you know we like to say well this team had so many hall of famers well besides lloyd and ben taylor who played for the team early on and then at the very end he managed the team and was a part-time player that's the only two hall of famers they had but they had lots of guys in that tier below there's a outfielder named cheney white who's really overlooked i think uh I don't know if he's Hall of Fame category, but he doesn't get the credit he should. He was in center field for several years. A guy named uh, <clears throat> Arthur Henderson, whose nickname was Rats, uh, because allegedly because when he was a young man going to work, he opened his lunch pail and one of his workmates had put a rat in his lunch pail and it jumped out and scared him to death. So for thereafter, supposedly, Arthur Henderson was Rats Henderson. But he was a real good pitcher. And he pitched for them for throughout the 20s. Um, had Red Greer, who was a... His career was kind of short, but it was really outstanding. Uh, when it, While it lasted, he pitched the first uh, Negro World Series no-hitter for the back racks in 1926. 
the team had a one of their star players again i wouldn't exactly say oliver marcel is is underrated the people who know the best players um realize he was one of the outstanding third basemen nicknamed ghost right yeah the ghost he was also an awful person to put up with. <laughs> he had a terrible temper. He was on the field. He was a great player. Apparently, he made an outstanding diving stop in that no-hitter, the save Greer's no-hitter in the ninth inning. But he'd argue with the fans. He'd argue with the umpires. He'd argue with his teammates. <laughs> yeah, so we, he was, we, had a, we had a conversation he, about uh, uh, Oscar Charleston in a previous uh, episode. It looks like they even uh-huh. had a couple of scraps uh, along the way, too. So uh, and Charleston being arguably one of the you know the best of, of all time, uh, based on current recollections. Well, Marcel kind of went beyond that. He was... He was involved in this situation in 1924 where he was traded twice from the New York Lincoln Giants to the Backracks in the same season. He had just become apparently intolerable. But then the th- he was involved in a late night incident in Harlem where a guy was shot to death on the street after an all night party at three in the morning. And three people were there. It was Marcel, Frank Wickware, who was a pitcher for the Lincoln Giants, and another pitcher named Dave Brown. Well, no one was ever quite sure what happened, but it's interesting that Dave Brown immediately vanished and was never seen in professional black baseball again. It's a little suspicious, but he blew town and no one ever found him. And Wickware and Marcel seemed to have come out of it fairly clean, but this was sort of the last straw for the Lincoln Giants. And then, so they, they get this guy out of town. Well, the Atlantic, the Backracks, who had had Marcel on the roster previously, needed a third baseman badly and wanted him. So they worked out a trade for two pitchers, Marcel for a couple of pitchers. One of them was sick at home in the South and refused to report. So the trade fell through. But the Lincoln still wanted to get Marcel out of the town, and the Backrack still had a, needed a third baseman. So they worked out another trade, and this time everybody agreed to go. And so Oliver came back to to Atlantic City and was the All Star third baseman uh, through their best years, their pennant winning years. How were they um, received uh, by the fans? Like uh, from what you could tell, I mean, were they were they popular at the gate, so to speak? Uh... You know, obviously winning certainly doesn't hurt, especially winning the titles in 26 and 27. But did it matter? Was the, the, the market big enough? Was Philadelphia a draw? Can you tell by any of your, your recollections of, or your uh, investigation about like how well they were, you know, uh, supported? I think they were much uh, admired by the black population in Atlantic City. But making a dollar in baseball, in professional baseball in Atlantic City was a problem it was a problem later. It would probably be a problem today because what? And this was this was true in the in the twenties. Hammond Daniels, who was the team president in 1923, after the season was over, told one of the papers that says, "You know, basically, in so many words, you know, there's just too much going on in Atlantic City." <laughs> it, 
The theory yeah, is like the Las Vegas it, situation, right? I mean, Las, yeah. it, 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 that seems to be getting a little different and more diverse now. But but the idea of Las Vegas seems sexy on paper, yet there's so many other distractions. That's not why people go to Las Vegas for, if you will, watching a sporting event, right? Or sporting teams on a regular basis. Yeah, it's like wow. There's so much going on here. People when they're not when they're not strolling the boardwalk or on the beach or gambling would be uh, be happy to go to a ball game, wouldn't they? Well, no, really. The farther away you get from the boardwalk, the thinner the interest gets. And this happened. This happened to the back racks. It also happened in the early 2000s. There was an attempt. The city built a really nice 10,000 seat stadium called Sandcastle Stadium. And they got a team in the Atlantic League, an independent minor league. And and within 10 years, the team was gone. I mean, just, people just didn't – people just come to see them play. People were, fo- people were focused on what was happening on the boardwalk, and that's what they did. So the Backracks had a lot of money troubles after the first few years. They inched along and – now, in my 1929, as as a, a league level uh, professional team, they were out of business, and the the odd structure of how money flows and what people are interested in in Atlantic City had a lot to do with that. I think if they, of course, I would say if they were in some other city, they would have done better. But if they were in some other city, they wouldn't have existed in the first place. But. Um, so, they, so their their real life consisted of only about a dozen years. the the franchise The franchise went out of business, and it got a promoter in Philadelphia named Harry Passan. I wouldn't say he bought the bought the the, the uh, rights to the name because I think there there was nothing to buy by the end of 1929. But he fired up the idea of the Backrack Giants again in Philadelphia as a mostly a regional. Uh, professional black team through the 30s until the World War II draw them out of business. And they had a little bit of uh, they, a lot of they cycled a lot of good players through there in Philadelphia. Roy Campanella got his start catching for the for the Backrack Giants in Philly, but they were never regarded as a league level team the way they were when they were in Atlantic City. All right, a couple, a couple little uh, pieces here that sort of stick out uh, from my sort of uh, investigation here. Uh, so uh, the they won titles in this Eastern Colored League 26 and 27, which qualified them for this Negro League World Series, which we sort of alluded to with this sort of, uh, I guess, true, if you will, uh, Negro League uh, uh final sort of championship with that of the Negro National League. But they also they lost both of those series in, in 26 and 27 to the uh, Chicago American Giants, which, of course, uh, you know, was uh, they were a power for various reasons in the Negro National League. Now, weren't they the, the Giants, the American Giants? Yes. Rube Foster by then had suffered his um, eventually life terminating mental breakdown and was no longer involved in the team, but the team on the field was Rube's team. He'd put it together and he was, I mean, everyone agrees. I think that he was the premier owner, organizer, talent scout and manager ever in the Negro leagues. So this was a good team. They, interestingly enough, 
actually the the championship series was the best five out of nine. So rather than four out of seven is in the white world series, you had to win five to win. And that's <clears throat> Greer's no hitter came along the way. He started one. He started the second game of the series and he was terrible. He got knocked out in the second inning and Lundy, who was the manager by that decided, well, you know, pitching that staffs in the Negro leagues are thin and, <laughs> Well, Red, you didn't work too hard. Why don't you take the ball and start the third game? Well, okay, he did, and he threw a no-hitter. So that and some other good fortune, the Backracks, after six games, the Backracks had won four of them. They only needed to win one of the last three games to be the champions, and they lost them all. <laughs> it, was, it was an awful letdown. So in 27, they're back. They win. They, they, in fact, they, they dominate the last full season of the Eastern Colored League. And they're back. And who's back from the National League but the Chicago American Giants. And they get the Backrecks get another World Series no-hitter. I mean, the major leagues only have Don Larson's perfect game, but uh, the, the Negro Leagues in their short period had two World Series no-hitters. A guy named Luther Red Farrell, who was a left again, another left-handed pitcher, who was probably pretty much the dominant starter for them that season in 27, pitched another no-hitter, not nearly as fancy as Greer's. It was in Chicago. It was raining. It was dark, and the game went only seven innings, and due to walks and errors, the backracks gave up two runs, so it was hardly a, a sort of polished gem you might expect, but it was a no-hitter nonetheless. But still, the Chicago American Giants, being who they were, wound up uh, winning that World Series too. But the backracks were in it two years in a row, which is nothing to be ashamed of. That's very interesting. All right, before before we get to sort of the the end of that sort of uh, the coda of that league and, and their, their 1929X uh, uh, adventure. Give me, let me back up for a second. Where's Backrack in all of this? Because he's 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 not he. You know he he ends his first mayoral term or maybe second mayoral term in 1920, right? But this, here's the decade of the 20s. Like, why are they even still called the Backrack Giants? I mean, does he even care anymore? I mean, this, is the promotional value of this team, or is it just sort of so entrenched as part of their name? And there's I, why that still and how involved, or does he even you know have any uh, involvement at all? Or it was very little, other than uh, he dropped out of he dropped out of local politics in 1920. His daughter died at a very young age, and it caused it was a great deal of, of family family trouble. He decided not to run for re-election in 20, although he did decide to run in 24 as as the reform candidate. But you know there was always a lot to reform in Atlantic City, but he didn't win. And then he dropped out of local politics. As I said, he became, he was on a couple of uh, New Jersey state commissions. He kept his hand in and then he was called, he was called back, you know, to help straighten the mess out in the thirties. He was uh, a businessman. He was in his family. The family business was, was uh, men's clothing and they were based in Philadelphia, but they had a New York, uh, they had a, uh, an Atlantic City outlet. He got into real estate. Everybody was in real estate. Tom Jackson was in real estate. You know, real estate. 
if you if you weren't actually providing hospitality services, you were in real estate selling property to support the hospitality services. So Harry uh, was you know, well off middle upper middle class in in business. He kept his connections with the team were below the below the uh, surface in a sense or below the horizon he and he was supporting them in ways he you know finding them a place to play and attending the games he was at a lot of he was seen at a lot of games he'd cheer the team on and all of that but no he had no he never had a real operational correct connection with the team even when he was the mayor well i take that back a little he did he he did <laughs> it turns out in the beginning, if you wanted to schedule a game with the Backracks in the late teens, you would call this guy who worked at City Hall, who I don't know what he did for City Hall, but he was the booking agent for the Backracks when Harry was the mayor. But later on, no, his connection with the team became less and less. Uh, they, He and his brother would support them in ways they needed to be supported by renting property, leasing property that they could turn into a ball field and stuff like that. But uh, really by the mid mid to late 20s there was no real connection anymore except the name and why change the name they were they were well known as the back rack giants why would they you know they wouldn't want to they were in a league they were world or league champions and world series participants why would you want to change the name even if the name didn't mean that much anymore no it's interesting i just wondered that the business aspect of that too as the team obviously gained more success uh, does the out of the business elements of it sort of warrant perhaps a rethink of the name or, or arguably maybe you're making the case why mess with a good thing? Because it, that is at least a reference and, and a, and a brand equity, I guess that's been built up, even though the namesake doesn't have any real involvement with the team. Yeah. And people were used to the name. It's interesting that after the franchise was relocated to Philadelphia, by Harry Passan, now now not only is Backrack not even remotely involved, the team isn't even in Atlantic City anymore. Uh, but they continue to be called all throughout the 30s the Backrack Giants because that's what people were used to, I guess. All right. Well, let's maybe just uh, maybe uh, in a roundabout way, sort of uh, maybe ask this sort of last sort of question because uh, they, there seems to be one le- uh, further curiosity we haven't sort of. Uh, touched on here and that is 1929 right so the eastern color league kind of collapses in at the end of uh, 28 uh, obviously with the defending champion atlantic city backrock giants um what is this american negro league in 1929 that uh atlantic city and a bunch of other teams go to is this something that sort of comes out of the embers of the eastern colored league and maybe a little bit of description because it only lasts itself a year and maybe obviously 1929 is a hint historically as to maybe why that was the case. Yeah. Uh, yes, the ECL went out of business in the middle of 28. And I mean, uh, the body was uh, no sooner buried, uh, so to speak, than the sports writers in the East started saying, we need a league. We really should have a league. I mean, you know, there's, there's still a league in the Midwest. We need a league in the East. So in the off season, things came together. Um, five of the six teams that had been in the late Eastern Colored League got together and formed the 
American Negro League, and they needed a six-team, and for the first time, uh, a, a perpetual holdout from league play, although a very good team, the Homestead Grays from Pittsburgh joined the league. So you had a six-team league, and it actually it was actually a pretty good league. It had, the ECL was famous or infamous for poor discipline and scheduling problems, even uh, and umpiring problems and everything else. And the 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 ANL actually solved a lot of those problems, and it was a pretty well run league. But now, I mean. We we think of the Great Depression as starting on that day in October when the stock market went straight south, but really there had been a cutback in the American economy since around 1927, particularly in manufacturing in the northern cities, and a lot of a lot of the African American employees of these manufacturing terms uh, team, uh, businesses had been recently hired at lower-level jobs. You know what they say, last in, first out, when the going gets tough. So the black communities were taking a serious economic earnings hit prior to any... So they, they, were, almost, they were also a leading economic indicator, so to speak. They were a leading economic indicator. Yes, it was. And if you look at... If you, if you delve into the economic, you know, the census economic stats at the time, you can you can actually see it. Um, unemployment was growing in the manufacturing, and the, the blacks were taking the, the brunt of it. So the American Negro League uh, had a lot of things going for it, and one thing it didn't have going for it was paying fans. So it went out of business in 1920, in 1929. By 1931, the Negro National League had followed it, and the minor, the the white minor leagues were were cut way back, and I believe white major league attendance uh, I plunged 25 percent over the course of a couple of years. But the black leagues were always on the cusp. They were just just because of who their fans were and how their owners were unable maybe to get leverage financing to build ballparks or meet long-term payrolls and stuff like that. The Negro Leagues, in the era we're talking about, the time before and the time after up through the 40s, were always tenuous, more or, or more tenuous than the white leagues, let's put it that way, which makes sense if you think about it. <laughs> Oh sure. Uh, so I guess I guess the last sort of piece of this would be uh, the maybe interesting sort of way that the uh, Backrack Giants uh, uh, sort of ended uh, their um, their first sort of real life and then their uh, only life uh, that year in, in the uh, ANL in in, in twenty nine. You know they're coming in as if you will the de facto defending champions of this circuit uh, from their ECL uh, predecessor. But it's also uh, not lost upon me that that they traded uh, some of their best players to the eventual winner of that league in 1929. Maybe a, maybe evidence of, frankly, just how financially difficult it was for Atlantic City particularly uh, to keep going. But um, it seems to me, based on what I can read here, is that Atlantic City kind of gave away their chance to maybe defend their title by giving away some of those players. 
They did. Uh, they were owned by that time by a guy, named, a local guy named Isaac Washington, who was in the real estate business, of course. He was also in the numbers business. He was also the numbers gambling baron of uh, of Atlantic City. So he had some money, but he apparently was a hard guy to get along with. And he and Lundy had a progressively uh, growing, falling out. And Marcel, I mean, Marcel was, you know, always uh, able to destroy the good graces of anybody he was playing for sooner or later. So he, so they were traded to the Baltimore Black Sox for Ben Taylor, who reappears on the scene. And Taylor, Lundy had been the manager of the Backracks, so Taylor, who was manager of the Black Sox in Baltimore, became the manager of the Backracks. But there was, I mean, so you had traded manager for manager. Well, Taylor's in the Hall of Fame. He's regarded as a great all-time manager, but you got to have somebody to play with at the same time. And the player base was was greatly uh, greatly undermined. <clears throat> and, in, and in addition, you know, they, I think they were having trouble playing players. You're still... People were deserting them. There were still lots of um, independent teams around you could go and play with, you know, who were who weren't bound by any uh, contractual uh, limitations on who they could sign. So yes, they lost a lot of talent, particularly Lundy and Marcel, and the team just. It wasn't, I mean, it wasn't going anywhere. Even if the American Negro League had been a thriving operation, the back, the back racks of 29 would still have been down around last place. Well, all this is very interesting because it just, it, the whole, I mean, there, there's a, a lot of different sort of pieces of intrigue here. The, the whole Atlantic City experience, obviously the Depression, obviously the Negro Leagues generally. Um, but it, I guess sort of as a, maybe as a wrap-up question, I, 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 Atlantic City, right, still, even in this sort of, description here in this this sort of history uh it still doesn't feel to me like a i don't know a quote-unquote major league uh uh worthy city because just of its of its size relatively uh and its uh, uh seasonality when it comes to you know being economically strong enough i know when we get into sort of the the the, the demise or the uh the sidewaysness of, of atlantic city over the years since then right but it strikes me as being interesting. It's it's not a Baltimore, right? It's not a it's not a Philadelphia. It's not even a a metropolitan Pittsburgh, right? Atlantic City is it's is a resort town, then and now. And uh, I just I'm surprised that it would uh, have lasted as long and as arguably successfully as it did. In you said it as an already shaky economic enterprise that was the uh, the Negro Leagues at that time, and and frankly for most of their time. Uh, that they were able to kind of, you know, uh, sweat it out and 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 be that relatively successful and well known, as much as they were for that period of time. Well, it is a little surprising because Atlantic City was a very seasonal place. Of course, the high season was when was the baseball season, so I think that helped at least. At least it, it either really helped or the entrepreneurs who wanted to make a go of it thought that it ought to help one of the, one of the two Atlantic city is an odd, an odd choice for a major league uh, franchise location, even at the Negro league level. But 
on the other hand, I mean, the whole city, the city is basically a glorified sandbar. It has, it has no industries. It has no sustaining corporate business structure other than that of the casinos in these days or the hotels in the old days. I mean, you can't even, there's no mining there. You, you have to pipe in fresh water from the mainland because you can't dig, you can't dig a well without hitting salt water. And people who die in Atlantic city are, are transported back to the mainland because the Atlantic city cemetery is on the mainland because you can't bury them there either. So it's, it's, it was built on a, like a dream and has sustained itself with, a, with its ups and downs over the years as a sort of dream place. So if your dream, and let's face it, a lot of historically, no matter what, the, what ethnic uh, uh, background or racial background, a lot of people get into owning professional teams because it's the great dream of theirs. So if you're going to have a dream about that, why not have it in Atlantic City, even if it didn't work in the long run? No, that's uh, true. And that's certainly a theme that we've seen on a lot of different fronts, uh, various dreamers and, uh, uh, you know, people trying to align themselves with, uh, uh, you know, uh, things that help sort of personally aggrandize, uh, uh, you know, but uh, ego and, and power, perception, uh, uh, influence, just fun, big boys with their toys, all that kind of stuff. All right. So uh, I here's sort of the I guess the last sort of uh, component of the question. Is there any sort of um, lineage uh, since then? Like, is, has any of this where does the history and or the legacy of this these Atlantic City versions of this team live? Does anybody sort of claim them? Is there any sort of either diaspora or or direct or somewhere in between lineage? Uh, would any team of today, for example, have any sort of late? lay claim to uh, their history and, and, you know, being able to sort of tap into their nostalgia, if you will, and their logos and all that kind of stuff, or are they just kind of, you know, one of the many sort of Negro League teams that have sort of just came and went, so to speak, with really no final, if you will, historical resting place? Well, there was one, there, there's one uh, connection, which is currently dormant, but I don't think it's going to remain so. John Henry Lloyd moved back to after he played in a lot of different places. But when he retired, he moved to Atlantic City because he liked it there. And he, he lived there the rest of his life. He was a custodian at the black high school and he taught kids to play ball and, and everybody just loved him. And in the late 40s, the city built a ballpark. With a covered grandstand and everything, and they called it John Henry Lloyd Stadium, and it was used. And then, of course, the way things go, the city fell on uh, in the '60s, fell in hard financial times, and they let the thing go to hell. And in the '70s, a group formed to rehabilitate the stadium. And they called themselves the John Henry Lloyd Foundation, and they held fundraisers, and they held a uh, weekend convention, and they raised money, and the ballpark was fixed up. And that, was, that took a couple of years, and then they looked around and said, you know, we're having a really good time. Why stop? <laughs> so they continued, the John Henry Lloyd Foundation continued to hold an annual 
get-together where they would give awards to people, and they had sort of three levels. You, former major leaguers and Negro leaguers were um, obviously uh, a, a source, and there were local community leaders could get awards, and they had this also people who were doing things, people on the national stage who were doing things for children. So there were three levels of awards and they would have a weekend get together, which I I went to several of them and they'd have this wonderful thing. And it was all about Pop Lloyd and the back racks were always in the mix. And it's like a lot of things. There are a small group of, uh, a guy named Mike Everett, who's a retired teacher there, was the main person. And uh, Belinda Manning, who's the daughter of Max Manning's, uh, the former Negro League pitcher, was uh, very involved. And they got tired. They got older. They got tired. They couldn't find anybody to take over. And the thing lapsed about three years ago, which is really too bad because it was a wonderful weekend. And Mike had the idea of having, because it's 2020, the 100th anniversary of the founding of the first Negro National League, had the idea of uh, putting together a revival this October. But uh, travel restrictions and everything is too chancy, so it's been canceled. But I have a feeling they'll be back. So the Vacracks sort of live on in the Pop Lloyd Foundation. So they're they're not... uh, they're not completely out of the picture, and and you know their their retro uh, jerseys and hats you can still find, you can find them around, but but um, other than that, yeah, and you wonder and you wonder it's too. kind of it's it's not like you know the Philadelphia Phillies will wear the Stars uniforms on Negro League Day or the Yankees will wear the black Yankees or whatever. Uh, that that's there's nobody there's nobody there to pick up that thread, but it's not entirely forgotten. No, and and you wonder too. I mean, this is probably one of a a, a number of, of of fascinating stories in Negro League history that uh, perhaps could be further adopted uh, by uh, any of the minor or major league teams, right? Uh, if uh, you know, I you could probably squint really hard and try to figure out some kind of uh, of loose connection, uh, but it almost feels like it's an orphaned team that uh, could. Uh, do uh, do well by being uh, remembered or commemorated uh, once and hopefully again, uh, you know, baseball sort of gets back up and running again. Um, and, well, I'd uh, certainly like a, to see it. <laughs> yeah, cer- certainly a team that's got some colorful history behind it, as well as some, you know, some uh, uh, Hall of Fame players, both in the uh, Negro League uh, Museum uh, Center, as well as the uh, the that of the of the of Cooperstown variety. So look, this is, you know, again, this is partially the reason why we we do this uh, silly little show is we we love discovering teams that uh, were for a time for various reasons uh, alive and, and, and vibrant and, and interesting and full of uh, full of stories and history and stuff. And this is absolutely one that uh, hits our radar really hard. And, and God forbid it's uh, it gets people to kind of discover it uh, anew. And maybe uh, do their own sort of research and maybe uh, rehabilitate and or bring back to life in some way, shape or form memorably for others to uh, to discover and remember and, and understand, too, especially in the in New Jersey, the good, great state of New Jersey where I was born. 
Um, oh. God, God forbid, you know, that we, uh, we remember teams <laughs> from, uh, from the Garden State. And um, look, this has, been, this has been great. So how about promoting a little bit? This, uh, how, how do people find out about this particular uh, story that, that you wrote and, and some of the other things that you've written? Well, this book is called Black Ball and the Boardwalk. It is published by uh, McFarland Books, and they're online at McFarlandBooks.com. They're from Jefferson, North Carolina. They're they are they have the biggest they have the biggest list of Negro League history books or black baseball history books that I know of. They have a lot of them. They have another one of mine on Cumberland Posey and the Homestead Grays, and they have they have its field book that kind of dragged me into this backcratch thing in the first place. But anyway, yeah, McFarlandBooks.com, and they can be found, you know, on the usual uh, internet outlets. But one I particularly push is uh, Bookshops.org, which is a outlet for independent bookstores part of the proceeds go to independent bookstores so that's that one and i have a, i have another uh, i have two others out right now it's very odd <laughs> you write you uh, you think you're only going to get a book out every few years and all of a sudden various reasons two of them come out at the same time there's cumberland posey come posey and the homestead grays which is the biography of the hall of fame uh, owner of the of the Grays in the second Negro National League, and that's also published by McFarlane. And a second edition of my first book about Effa Manley, uh, Queen of the Negro Leagues, is now out from Roman and Littlefield, R-O-W-M-A-N, not like the ancient Italians, but R-O-W-M-A-N and Littlefield, which is R-O-W-M-A-N.com. That's available from them and all of those other um, online sources. This updates. She was elected to the hall in 2006, the same time Posey was, and uh, my first version was published long before that, so we updated it to honor her for being the first and probably in the foreseeable future only woman member of the Hall of Fame. So those are the three that are out there. Our kind thanks and the tip of a very old and dusty baseball cap to our new pal, Jim Overmeyer. He will be back. We're going to have some other conversations uh, around some Negro League things uh, in future episodes. But uh, in the meantime, uh, I know that uh, you will enjoy uh, the book that Jim has written. It's the authoritative, definitive work about the Atlantic City Bacharach Giants. It's fascinating stuff. It's called Black Ball and the Boardwalk. The Bacharach Giants of Atlantic City. It is available in paperback form from our friends at McFarland and Company. It's also available in Kindle form. And of course, uh, you'll find a link to both of those versions on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this little episode with Jim Overmeyer, and you'll find not only uh, the descriptive uh, contents of this episode, but you'll also find some convenient links uh, to these uh, versions of book for you to purchase, download, or otherwise enjoy, as well as, frankly, while you're there, all the the dozens of other shows that we've done over the last three and a half, almost four years now, they're all there for you on the website, as well as uh, 
your ability to share them, to stream them, do whatever you want with them. Um, and of course, while you're at Good Seats Still Available, make sure that you uh, you sign up for our weekly newsletter so you can know what's coming up in the weeks ahead. And uh, you'll find a link there conveniently. You also find a link to our email address, which happens to be hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And of course, you can send us a note directly that way if you want. And of course, you'll find all of our social media links on our website, but also you can do those uh, directly. You want to sign up for those or follow us uh, in those various places. Uh, on Facebook, there's a page devoted to us. You'll find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. And on Twitter, you will find us at Good Seats Still. Uh, let us see. What else? Jerry Payne, you know him. You love him. You can't live without him. I can't live without him, at least. Uh, he's a good, the uh, good purveyor of production services for this here little show. Jerry Payne Audio Excellence is his little domiciled uh, business there. And we appreciate his continued goodness in putting our collective audio pieces together each and every week. So we tip again our baseball cap uh, in his general direction as well. And uh, what else? I think that's it. Yeah, I think that's it. Uh, we appreciate, of course, uh, you're listening uh, to us not only this week, but all the weeks uh, in the past and hopefully in the future. Uh, again, please do what it is that you need to do to stay safe and healthy. Uh, there's lots of conflicting information out there. Think about all of it. Do the right things. Don't be stupid. And uh, let us uh, all try to get through all of the next number of months and frankly, even beyond together. Uh, do the smart things, will you? And uh, please uh, stay safe and keep others around you similarly safe and healthy. All right, before we run, we're going to leave you with, uh, it is not lost on us uh, that uh, a lot of what we talked about the, this week with Jim uh, does overlap and uh, over, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Is concentric. Yeah, there you go. With a lot of the uh, the topics and the stories and the the background around a very popular show that was on HBO I think you can actually get episodes of that for free now for a short period of time uh, as HBO allows people to sample their streaming service uh, in these days of uh, coronavirus and being homebound. Uh, it's called Boardwalk Empire, of course. And let us leave you now with that uh, that theme, the opening theme of that show. Uh, it maybe puts us in a mood and perhaps even convinces you to learn about the baseball components of of that show. And uh, we appreciate, of course, your listening. And uh, well, let's leave you with that theme. And until next week. Take care, truly, everybody, and uh, we'll see you soon.